All right, I hope you have a Bible this morning or access to one because we're going to go through the first chapter of the Old Testament book of Haggai. And I want you to be able to follow along with me. Uh, Haggai is a minor prophet, but that doesn't mean he's not important. It just means it's small. It's, it's just short, okay? So if you're having trouble finding it and you're flipping through your Old Testament trying to get there, let me just give you a little tip. If you start at Matthew, which is the beginning of your New Testament, and then just go backwards three books. It's the third book back from Matthew. Or if you've got a device and you can just open up a Bible app or Google it, uh, Google Haggai, the words up on the screen, you can spell it, and it'll take you right where you need to go. But it's just going to be so important that you track along with us in the Bible this morning uh, because we're going to cover a lot of ground and we're going to be talking about things we don't normally talk about. So uh, speaking of that, we don't talk normally about prophecy. Uh, I'm just going to give you a little hint that there's no like trickery here. There's no like, uh, you know, special things that we need to decode messages. You know, like we need to like pull something out of a cereal box to help us decode a message and, and, uh, and access some hidden truth here. It just is the story of God's people in a real relationship with a real God going through real life issues. I love what J.C. Ryle says about the Old Testament. He says, let us never listen to those who tell us to throw it aside as an obsolete, antiquated, useless book. The Old Testament is the gospel in the bud. The New Testament is the gospel in full flower. I love that image, right? It's all the same. It's just moving into this new stage, right? So while anyone on a casual walk can appreciate the, uh, the beauty of a, a flower in full bloom, it takes a little bit more attention to detail, a little bit more careful study to appreciate the beauty in the, in the flower of the bud, okay, and see that. So <clears throat> let's talk about what these Old Testament and New Testaments do, just to set up some of our study of Haggai, right? The New Testament we know is the story of the new covenant, that God makes with people through the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is the story of God making covenant with one nation in ways that point to the fulfillment of God's big promise to make a way for all people to know him through Jesus. That's kind of general terms, Old Testament, New Testament. So here's some context for Haggai. Haggai was a prophet, which just... Like we said, no secret decoder rings or anything like that. We, the prophet doesn't mean that he was a fortune teller, by the way. Uh, it just means that he was like a truth teller, like that God used prophets to just speak truth to his people. And so this is who Haggai was. He lived just over 500 years before Jesus. I know you probably have at least, because of Christmas, that sort of marker on your timeline. So just go back to like 0 to 33 AD-ish and then go backwards 500 plus years and you got Haggai. Now, Haggai and the God's people were living in covenant relationship with God under this old covenant. In fact, it was a covenant that had been established a thousand years before Haggai. So this is an old way of relating to, to God with generation upon generation upon generation living in this system. It was a covenant of blessing and a covenant of curse. Obedience led to blessing, disobedience led to curse. This is all described in the books of Exodus and Deuteronomy as God uses Moses to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt through 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and then into eventually living with God as their God and God with people as his people in the land of promise, the promised land. This is kind of the story of the Old Testament, how it's developing, but they're living in this covenant 
of blessing and curse. And after generations of disobedience in the promised land, not just somebody's mistake once or twice, but generations of disobedience, one of the curses was to be conquered by another nation and removed from the land of promise for a time of discipline. The Bible calls this exile. And so in God's grace, he brought them back to the land eventually, but the group of people who Haggai is addressing is the group who had been conquered by the Babylonians in uh, 586 B.C., but then something interesting happened. They had been taken away, and they were living in Babylon, but then, you know, world geopolitics, the Persians come in and rise to power, and then they conquer the Babylonians. So here in Babylon, now Persia is God's people living outside of the land of promise in this time of discipline called exile. And God is going to restore them to the land. And he uses this Persian king uh, to restore them to the land. And so by 538 B.C., uh, the Babylonians are conquered. And then in the second year of King Cyrus, they uh, are allowed to return to their land to rebuild the temple of the Lord. This is a lot of history, a lot of setup, a lot of context. You can read more about this in like the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. They tell about this in a little bit more detail. But you can imagine the excitement. I mean, there were a few people probably who remembered what life was like before the Babylonian exile. They remembered the old temple, the glory of Solomon's temple. They remembered what life was like and commerce was like before being conquered and taken in exile. But most people by this time probably had been either born and raised in Babylon uh, or were just sort of, you know, uh, at the end, tail end of their life. And, uh, and not a whole lot of help with the project at hand anyway. And so uh, this is the situation that Haggai is speaking into. They're excited, though. In fact... As Ezra and Nehemiah describe, uh, the people start by quickly building the foundation of the temple. Uh, this is the first thing. You come back to the land of promise, you want to lay the foundation, you want to build God's temple. It's the centerpiece of life with God, the centerpiece of Jerusalem. And they did this under the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel, which is like next time you hear someone sneeze, just say Zerubbabel instead of Gesundheit and see what someone says. And, uh, but this is the guy who's leading this. Uh, this charge, and uh, it sounds great. I mean, they're pumped. They're reclaiming their land. They're reclaiming their heritage. They're reclaiming, you know, the, the family history, the relationship with God, etc., except that it wasn't all smooth sailing. You see, when they were not in the land of promise, they were off in Babylon, now Persia, other people slipped in. And then when they came back to the land, these other people go, well, this isn't very cool because finders keepers, right? And so here we are, and here you are, and now you're trying to establish your religion and way of being here in Jerusalem uh, with the temple, and we're not very happy about that, so we're going to fight against you. We're going to try to get you to stop. And they faced all this external opposition, but then they also had their own sort of internal challenges, like they had to rebuild their homes. Uh, they had to rebuild their businesses, commerce, like how things work in their culture in the land of promise. All this had to be done. And they started with great excitement building the foundation of the temple, but when 16 years had passed, they realized through Haggai that nothing else had been done and God wasn't happy. The temple foundation was starting to decay because nothing had been done except that first step. 
It makes me think about the teenagers who we had. Uh, I told you guys about doing Spark Weekend. Uh, I don't know if you ever went to youth camp or did something like a Disciple Now or Spark Weekend uh, when you were growing up, or you know someone who's just had a spiritual experience, like kind of a spiritual high, and you get kind of excited, like God's doing something, and, and you meet God in kind of a real and exciting way, and you sort of set off really quickly, and you do some spiritual activity, but then you sort of have to go back to your normal life. Like these teenagers today are going to have to go home this afternoon, away from the group that they were with when they had this experience with God. They're going to get back into their family life. They're going to, you know, Lord willing, wake up and go to school tomorrow. Maybe some of them are going to work today even. And they're just going to get back into the normal routines of life. And what can happen is the excitement of what God started can quickly fade to the point that all of a sudden, the only thing that's left is a memory of the excitement and nothing being done about it. Because other things just sort of step in and take priority. And like the ancient Jews, these teenagers, and maybe you, face a ton of pressure from the outside, from your job, from your school. From what, you face all these pressures that are pulling you away from God. But the message of Haggai, and maybe what you need to hear today, is that regardless of your circumstance, regardless of external pressures, you can thrive in a relationship with God for the long haul simply by keeping your priorities straight, by keeping the main thing the main thing, by keeping first things first. So let's look at how God used the prophet Haggai to speak into this situation. He starts with a reality check. This is a reality check for God's people. Now keep in mind that the kind of covenant that God has with his people at this point is a covenant of blessing and curse, right? It's a kind of a cause and effect type relationship. Uh, the Bible word for this kind of reality check is, uh, is the word rebuke. Rebuke. Now let me just boil this down. A rebuke is basically like someone going, hey, you're going the wrong way. Like when I get in the car and I'm driving, um, something happens in my male brain. I don't know what it is, but I just sort of get into, uh, you know, just I'm in the zone. And I just go, muscle memory takes over, okay? And so I could be going out to eat with the family, except that I turn like I'm going to work, okay? And then, you know, Jill in the passenger seat goes, hey, where are you going? And you know what's funny is like early on in our marriage, I would get angry at this. Like, I, and, and even though in my mind I knew, oh, I just totally spaced and I'm going the wrong way, I would go, I know where I'm going, you know, I'm going this way, or I'm doing this, or whatever. Like, and, and we would have these little arguments in the car about me just, you know, spacing out in the car. But she was there to go, hey, you're going the wrong way. Well, over time, I realized, like, what a gift that is to have Jill sitting in the passenger seat and going, hey, uh, where are you going? That is the Bible word rebuke, okay? And so this is what's happening. It sounds harsh, but it's really just an incredible act of grace, because God knows that his people's actions are going to result in adverse consequences, and he longs to restore them to blessing and to flourishing. And so where did the people go wrong? Well, let's read this. Starting in verse 1, Haggai chapter 1, through verse 4. It says, In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. 
the Lord of armies says this. These people say, the time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. But the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? So where did the people go wrong? Well, just a couple of notes. I hope just right off the bat, what we see in verse 2 is the name that is used for God. The Old Testament's full of names for God, all kinds of names that describe God's character and personality. And this particular name is the Lord of armies here in this translation. Your Bible might say Lord of hosts. Maybe your Bible says Lord Almighty. It's all the same Hebrew word, just different ways to translate it. It's actually the very same name that's inscribed in the Ark of the Covenant. Remember when the people left Egypt and they were wandering in the wilderness, God gave them these instructions about how to live in relationship with him and to have his presence among them. And they had this tabernacle, this like mobile temple, a big tent that they would construct and tear down and move with them and then construct and tear down and move with them as they wandered in the wilderness. And a central piece of that tabernacle experience was the Ark of the Covenant. It was a physical reminder of the presence of God and the mercy God had on the people. And inscribed on this box was the name, the Lord of Armies. And so although that was a thousand years before Haggai, When Haggai steps up and says, the Lord of armies says, what the people are hearing is God Almighty, God who is over the Egyptians, God who's over the Babylonians, God who's over the Persians, God who's over us, God who's Lord of all, is over all, but he's also personal and present. That's what they would have heard. The Lord Almighty big, huge God, personal and present Lord. There's a lot wrapped up in that. It it reminds them of this covenant relationship and how God is all-powerful but also present. And then it says that the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies says, these people say, which is funny because whenever someone says, like, these people or those people, we go, those people, these people— you got to notice this. This is a covenant God, and he responds and talks to his people, but he doesn't say, my people. He says, these people. Like when one parent says to another, like, hey, these are your kids. You know, <laughs> like obviously something's gone wrong here. Like something's not happening. And so God is saying, these people, uh, something's off. Well, something's gone wrong. He's stepping in to call them to make it right. These people say the time has not yet come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. That phrase, the time has not yet come, is really a nice way of saying they just have better things to do. In their mind, they just have better things to do. At our house, um, you know, Jill might say to me, like, hey, would you... uh, would you just help me and put the, the clothes from the washer and the dryer? And I'm usually up to something else. And I go, yeah, yeah, in a minute. <clears throat> but you know what happens is like minutes turn to hours and then hours like kind of sometimes turn to days. And then Joe goes, hey, did you do that thing? And I go, I forgot. Maybe it's just me. Maybe you other folks are not like that. But this is what the Israelites were doing. God says, go back to your land. 
build the temple. Let's restore this covenant relationship life in the land of promise. And they start out great, but then they go, oh, wait, maybe there's something else that's important. Maybe I need to just like take a little break from the temple and go and work on my house for a second. And, you know, I got to get my business started so that I can eventually go back to work on the temple and maybe have some income coming in or whatever they might have been thinking. Or I have to defend myself from the neighboring armies, whatever it is. And then eventually, in a minute, became Ah, I forgot. (laughs) And so they knew the time was now. They said the time has not yet come, but what they're actually saying is, we're just choosing not to do it. That's a huge deal. Because for these people, avoiding the temple project was evidence that their hearts had actually abandoned God. That they were about their own self-preservation. The temple was a critical symbol in the Old Testament. You know, it was more than just a place of ritual. It was a place of relationship, which is why Haggai uses the term house. If you're looking in these verses, he'll repeatedly call the, the Lord's temple his house, right? His dwelling place where he would be among the people, dwell with his people. And not building the temple meant that the people just didn't care to live with God. They didn't care for God to be central to their lives. So the question God asks in verse 4 speaks to where things went wrong. You see in verse 4 where God says, Is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? You see, for these people, it was their desire for comfort, which started just maybe as even a distraction from the temple project, but ultimately became their devotion. And this is how misplaced priorities work. What might start as a distraction from the main thing eventually takes the place of your devotion. It's like how no one sets out to love their job more than their kids. But look at the problem of workaholism in our culture. I mean, that's not how you started. Like, it was just something you were up to. Like, you just were going, okay, I got to focus on something else. But what distracts you from the main thing, ultimately, if you don't reorder those priorities, will become your devotion. There's always another project. There's always something broken. There's always a need for more. And as these guys return from exile... Their singular devotion began, became, I'm going to take care of my own needs. And the temple never got built. 16 years had gone by. And it's just a foundation lying and already decaying. He says they lived in paneled houses in verse 4. Now, I don't know if that just, like, brings up memories of the 70s and 80s for you, like wood paneling all over your house, or maybe, like, when you got a house and you felt like you had to paint over it or tear all that stuff down. Now it's coming back. I don't know if you guys know this. Wood paneling is coming back. But he says they lived in paneled houses. He didn't just mean they had paneling in their houses. He was saying something deeper. He was saying, uh, like, well, they were well-appointed. I don't know. Have you ever seen this word, well-appointed, this phrase? Like, if you're looking for an Airbnb or a VRBO or something, you're trying to find a place to stay on vacation, they'll say, Oh, our place is well-appointed. It's like a phrase nobody uses in real life. They only use it online to help sell something. Okay, so, but the idea is like, we got everything you need. Like, you can come stay at this place, pay us some money, 
And this place is well appointed. Like, I mean, we're going to have everything set for you. We've got all the linens. We've got all the kitchenware. We've got everything you need. It's going to be comfortable. You're going to love it. It's well appointed. That's what he's saying when he says, is it now time for you to live in your paneled houses? Is it time still for you to be more comfortable? Like you already have as much as you need and more, yet you still long for more comfort? Like how much comfort is enough for you while my house still lies in ruins? This is the question God is posing to the people. And the closest modern day comparison I can make I'm not saying it's a correlation exactly, but if you think back to the year 2020, there's two realities that we saw in our world very clearly. There was the rise of revenue at places like Lowe's and Home Depot and the decline of church attendance. Now, I'm not saying there's a direct correlation. I'm just saying that's similar to what was happening in this place at this time that the people of God had set aside God's work to focus on their own comfort and they were a lot more likely to go to the hardware store than they were to worship. That was the reality. So how does the Lord respond as the people's misplaced priorities are exposed? Well, let's read verses five and six. It says, now the Lord of armies says this, think carefully about your ways. You planted much but harvested little. You eat, but never enough to be satisfied. You drink, but never have enough to be happy. You put on clothes, but never have enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wages into a bag with a hole in it. I don't know if you feel that sometimes. You go, I just worked so hard. Why is my bank account dry? <laughs> This is life with misplaced priorities. And all of their effort was pointed toward the good life and what they thought the good life was. The harder they worked, the more they came up short. Now, let me just pause because there's a temptation for you to look at this and go, well, all they got to do is obey God and they'll be rich and happy. Like this prosperity gospel message. But that's not the message that Haggai's laying out. Instead, God is saying he has a heart for his people. He's saying, first, think carefully. Verse 5, think carefully, which essentially means to sort of balance the books of reality, so to speak. Like take a good hard look at the pursuit of the good life without God and be honest and recognize the math doesn't work. It doesn't add up. I mean, you can, you can work really, really hard, but you're just not going to get the result because misplaced priorities always lead to unintended consequences. It's like God is literally hanging a sign on his people saying, out of order. I mean, they're putting everything that they're supposed to into the machine, but the product isn't coming out. They're out of order. The good news is it can be fixed. Let's keep reading. What should they do now? Verse 7, the Lord of armies says this. Think carefully about your ways. Go up into the hills, bring down lumber, and build the house. And I will be pleased with it and glorified. Now the command to think is repeated. Isn't it great how 
God wants us to use our brains, <laughs> that God gave you a brain, logic, that you have understanding, that you can see things rightly. And when you do, after you think, and maybe think twice, you got to do something. you got to put it into action. This is what's happening here. The command to think is repeated, but it's got to be followed with action. This was hard, unglamorous work. It was often unseen, thankless kind of work to hike to the hills, to harvest the timber, to load it up, haul it back, and then begin building. But the blessing for their obedience far outweighed the cost. It far outweighed the effort because the response is that God would be pleased and glorified. And at first glance, you're reading this and you go, well, great, yeah, of course God will be pleased with obedience. Of course God will be glorified with obedience. Sure, but let me just show you how this phrasing is covenant language. It's used all over the Old Testament, this idea of being, God being pleased and glorified. And what he's essentially saying is that God would be present and at work fulfilling his promises among the people. What a stark contrast from the people not building the temple, essentially saying, I would rather God be homeless than to have his presence here. To now, God says, if you obey, I'll restore my presence. I, I will fulfill my promises among you. And it's a beautiful picture of how rightly ordered priorities always lead to God's blessing. Now, but Haggai doubles down on the rebuke. Remember the rebuke? Hey, you're going the wrong way. He doubles down on it in verse 9 because there's more to the story. There's a bigger picture at play so that the people understand the weight of disobedience. Let's read it together in verse 9. It says, you expected much, but then it amounted to little. Whew. When you brought the harvest to your house... I ruined it. Huh. Why? This is the declaration of the Lord of Armies. Because my house still lies in ruins while each of you is busy with his own house. So on your account, the skies have withheld the dew and the land its crops. I summoned a drought on the fields and the hills, on the grain, new wine, fresh oil, and whatever the ground yields, on man and animal, and on all that your hand produces. Now, it's clear from these verses that God's not an innocent bystander to the plight of his people. That God plays actually an active role in the people's problems because of their misplaced priorities. Now, this is something we don't talk about very often. But remember the cause and effect blessing and curse covenant that God had with the people at this juncture in history. And these curses from verses 10 and 11, like the drought and the skies dry up and everything, these curses are almost direct quotations from the curses that God warned the people about when the covenant was established generations before, almost a thousand years before in Deuteronomy chapters 28 through 30. So God had warned his people. And the people knew it. They understood what the consequences were, and they still chose to act the way they did. And so God is stepping in, saying, not only were there natural consequences to your misplaced priorities, there were supernatural consequences. That God is active 
in disciplining his people. And rightly so. Because of what he says in verse 9, my house lies in ruins, and this is my paraphrase, my house lies in ruins while you are busy inventing new ways to focus on yours. You ever sit around your house and go, man, I really would like if this was like that, or I really would like if we could change that, or man, I'd love to add a deck on that backyard. And you sit and you dream up new things to make yourself busy with at home. This is what they're doing. God says, my house lies in ruins while you're busy inventing new ways to focus on yours. He says, what you care about inspires a flurry of activity, but what I care about hasn't caused you to lift a finger. Now, if you're doing like what Haggai says to the people when he says, think carefully about your ways, you probably are recognizing this in your own heart and life. The flurry of activity, the busyness about the things that you care about but not the things God cares about. I mean, has anyone ever asked you how you're doing and you respond with, I'm busy? That's a warning sign. You ever gone to bed at night just wishing you had an extra hour to take care of the things you had to do? You ever woke up in the morning feeling like your to-do list is already behind? It's that flurry of activity, focusing on the things I care about without necessarily lifting a finger on the things God cares about. This was the rebuke. And misplaced priorities always have natural and supernatural consequences. So why would God do this? Well, uh, just a quick illustration, but early on in my ministry, I served with a, a person who was chronically late and whose work was always half done. And uh, it just, it affected everybody. Um, I wasn't a supervisor, but I was uh, being mentored by the supervisor. And so I remember having a conversation with him when it came time to fire this guy. You, I mean, ministry's not that hard. Like, you shouldn't have to get fired from ministry. I right? just show up, right? <laughs> I mean, it's a little more complicated maybe. But, uh, so he had to be fired. Supervisor who's mentoring me says to me when I say, well, I mean, is there not just another chance? Well, he had been through a series of conversations, like these little come to Jesus moments, like, hey, you got to be to work on time. Or like, hey, you got to get your work done. I mean, these are basic things. And he wasn't able to do it. And so the supervisor says to me, I'll never forget it. He said, the greatest act of grace I could show him was to allow him to feel the consequences of his actions in hopes it motivates him to correct it. You see, it's hard for us to comprehend at first glance, but God was acting in love toward his people. And sometimes God's discipline toward us is the same. The Bible's clear. God's active in his discipline towards sin because of this, because he cannot bear for us to live under the lie that sin could lead to fulfillment. He can't bear it. Like if there's anything he can't stand, it would be for us to live under the lie that sin might actually make us happy because sin never leads to abundance. True fulfillment is only found in a life of obedience to God. And this is the amazing thing about the story of Haggai that makes it unique from most other prophets in the Old Testament. It's one of the rare instances in the Bible that the people and the leaders make a unified response toward faithfulness. This is the second thing we see in chapter 1 is the people's response. Look at verse 12. It says, Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the entire remnant of the people obeyed the Lord their God and the words of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him. So the people 
feared the Lord. The people obeyed. The word Haggai uses is the same word that other prophets use to describe a response of repentance and faith. You see, it was more than a physical response. It was a spiritual response. And that's what's needed when your priorities get out of whack. It's not just that you have to do the right thing. It's that you have to love the right thing. And then that leads to doing. God's desire wasn't simply obedience. It was relationship. Relationship. And the people responded to his word. It says that they feared the Lord. Another way to say that is simply that the people started living again as if God was the most important thing. They feared the Lord. They just started living again as if God was the most important thing. So Haggai, reality check, people's response. And then one more message from the Lord through Haggai in chapter 1 in which God reassures the people with a promise of relationship. Look at verse 13 with me. It says this. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, delivered the Lord's message to the people. I am with you. This is the Lord's declaration. The Lord roused the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, the spirit of the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. They began work on the house of the Lord of armies, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. A couple things I just want to pull out of that as we close. God's promise of relationship included his presence. Don't you love that? The problem was that the people had not built the temple. They left the foundation to rot. They essentially said to God, you're dead to us. We don't care if your presence is here or not. We're going to go about our business. But God lovingly steps in through Haggai and calls them to repentance, a response of repentance, and restores his relationship with them so that now he says, I am with you. You will experience the blessing of God's presence. What an incredible assurance. But he also leaves them with his power. Do you see how he rouses the spirit of the leaders? He rouses the spirit of the people. There's something greater and deeper and more spiritual at work in the lives of these people. They're not just humans. They are spiritual beings with a soul. And God is at work stirring their soul. And he rouses their spirits. He moves them from, from discouragement to encouragement. He moves them from weakness to strength. These are people who had literally wanted to live as if God was homeless and unimportant in their lives. Now have responded to his call, his rebuke. And they're being faithful and they're getting the work done. And he says, I'm with you. I want to encourage you. I want to strengthen you. And then I love how Haggai, again, refers to God as the Lord of armies. But he adds a little phrase, their God. Something that was clearly absent at the beginning of chapter 1 is now a reality again. The chapter started with an obvious separation of relationship and now ends with a restoration of relationship. And this was because of their obedience, which was how the old covenant worked. Blessing for obedience, curse for disobedience. But Haggai, as we'll see over the next couple weeks, is not 
ultimately describing the need for obedience. He's ultimately pointing to our need for a savior. Remember, we're only looking at the bud of the flower in the Old Testament. It's beautiful in its own way, but it is leading to something even more beautiful, the bloom. The bloom of the new covenant in Jesus Christ. The bud is the story of God restoring relationship with his people through their sacrifice. The bloom is God restoring people to relationship with him through his sacrifice of himself on behalf of the people. See, Jesus was the perfectly obedient son who took the curse of God's wrath on himself so that he could transmit the blessing of God to us even though we were disobedient. This is what he's pointing at. That's why Jesus died. He took our curse so we could have his blessing. This is the good news of Jesus. So we obey, but not to earn his grace, but because he's already given it to us through Christ. We make Jesus the center of our lives. We prioritize him because he gave Jesus to us. He blessed us by cursing himself. This is incredible news. Would you respond to it today? I want to ask you to stand. We're going to sing one final song of response. Ariel's going to come and lead it. I wanted to give you an opportunity to respond to God. Maybe today you are hearing the news of uh, Jesus who took your curse. Even though you were disobedient to God, he took your punishment. And he's offering you the blessing of God, which is eternal life, life forever here and now with God. The Bible says that you can respond not by earning it, by doing a bunch of good things, but by believing in Jesus by faith. Leaving behind your old way of life and living into a new way of life with Jesus as your Lord. But it starts just by putting your faith in him. And maybe today you need to do that. I want to just lead a brief prayer where you might respond to God in that way. And then we'll sing this final song together. God, you are good because we didn't deserve anything from you. But you gave us everything in Jesus. My prayer today, God, is that someone in this room who needs to take that step to say, I'm tired of trying to earn your favor I'm ready to receive your favor by faith in Jesus Christ. Not to live for your favor, but from your favor. And God, I pray that you would help that person take that step today to put faith in Jesus, entering into a life-changing and ever-growing relationship with him. And God, would you help us as a church as we walk with people to grow in that relationship with Jesus. And we want to order our lives around you. We want to make you the priority, the center, because we were your priority when you sent Jesus. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.